The philosopher Thomas Hobbes said that war is a combination of force and fraud. Conventional forces tend to focus on the delivery of force. Now, whilst the SAS also has that capability, it really lives in the world of fraud. SAS converted their rifles illegally to imitate the sound of a heavy machine gun. This often tricked the VC into thinking a small SAS patrol was a big force. We were not afraid of the American GIs, Australian infantry, or even B-52 bombing. But we hated the Australian SAS Rangers because they make comrades disappear very suddenly. Giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Thanksgiving just passed. I hope everyone had a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Uh, for everyone overseas still deployed and serving, you know, we appreciate everything you guys do. And um, this is going to be a good episode. On with me for this episode is Australian Special Air Service Regiment Major Dr. Dan Pronk. And uh, he's had a very interesting career. We discussed a, a bunch of different things, including uh, combat medicine and, and uh, bleeding control and some other cool stuff. You guys are going to enjoy it, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, before I get into the conversation I had with uh, the doctor, um, I, I want to talk about a... U.S. Navy EOD technician who was killed in Syria on Thanksgiving. Uh, he is the first American service member to die fighting the Islamic State in Syria. He was a decorated and highly experienced Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal Specialist, Senior Chief Petty Officer Scott Cooper Dayton. He was 42 years old. Uh, he was killed by wounds sustained in an improvised explosive device blast in northern Syria. Uh, the blast occurred in the vicinity of An Issa, near the Islamic State stronghold of Raqqa, where U.S. troops are working with local forces to retake the city. Um, you know, his the, the death of the senior chief petty officer is just a reminder that, you know, there is a, a global threat that exists, and there are Americans, among other nations, uh, soldiers and, and sailors who are out there fighting and, and trying to do the right thing. And, you know, while we are all at home, or, or, you know, with our families or, uh, you know, there are people out there still making the ultimate sacrifice. And, um, you know, we are incredibly appreciative and, and grateful for these men. And I just want to send the con my condolences out to the family of the uh, senior petty officer, now, um, the Australian 
Special Air Service Regiment is officially abbreviated the SASR. It's commonly referred to as the SAS. Uh, it was formed in 1957. It's modeled like many of the Western Special Operations uh, counterterrorism units are after the British Special Air Service, and they share the motto, Who Dares Wins. Uh, this unit is a highly respected unit. Uh, they fought in several conflicts, you know, over the since their inception. Um, they've taken part in operations in Borno, Vietnam, Somalia, East Timor, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And they are a highly experienced unit, you know, with service spanning since 1957. So we had a very interesting conversation. Uh, the major, you know, we talked about the, the development of tactical medicine. We talked about the difference in fighting a conflict, which is which is the conflicts that we're fighting in these days, which is smaller, you know, smaller groups we're fighting. We typically have air superiority, so we're able to get uh, medevac helicopters in quickly and get people out, and, and we're saving a record number of people. But we also discussed uh, what is known as prolonged field care uh, in a situation where perhaps we wouldn't dominate the skies against the enemy we're fighting. And and that would basically mean fighting an, uh, a more conventional enemy, like a another big government, basically. And um, and so in, in that scenario, there would have to be different uh, techniques, different equipment, uh, in order to keep guys who are wounded and sustain them for longer periods of time, uh, which is something that's very different from what guys are used to today. So. Um, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. And here's a conversation that I had with Australian SAS Major Dr. Dan Punk. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Um, on with me for this episode is a very special guest, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Dan Punk. And uh, Dan is a retired Australian Special Forces Major. Um, he's also a, a doctor, as I said, uh, has a Led an interesting career while serving with the Australian military, and um, just glad to have just finally have you on, man. How's it going? Yeah, going well, John. Hey, cheers for this opportunity. I appreciate it. All right, cool, man. So you know, we'll, we'll get into a couple of things. Um, you know, we'll talk about a little bit about your career and stuff like that, and and also what you're doing now. But let, let's start with uh, kind of going back to the beginning. Um, what motivated you to join the Australian military? And uh, and then after that, if you know, we can kind of get into your career uh, throughout the military. Yeah, for sure. I um, look. I guess, like so many of us, I, I came from a uh, military background. My dad was a uh, was a was an army helicopter pilot and a career career army officer. So I grew up in that environment. So army was familiar to me, and uh, and then. Growing up, my, my lifelong best mate uh, ended up in the uh, army as well, and he ended up uh, with the SAS regiment, and that was where I got a bit of an exposure into the SF world. And so, as I went through, I did a, an initial university degree as a civilian, and uh, did an exercise physiology degree. And at the end of that, I wanted to study a bit further, 
and I was also looking towards the military and uh, I came across an army scholarship scheme to study medicine and so I applied for that, managed to get myself into medical school and got the army scholarship and the, the two came together with me uh, ending up training through the army to be a doctor. And and how long was that that initial process beginning with when you started uh, studying to by the time that you were done and by the time you were in the military? Would that take a number of years? So the way it works, you 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 sign on and you become full-time army to study, but basically you go to university like any other civilian. So the army pays you and you've got military rank and all the rest, but you don't have any army obligation while you're studying. So there was a, a period of six years where I was full-time army, but I was studying for the first four years. So I did my, my medicine uh, as a second degree. So postgraduate medicine in Australia takes four years after you've got your initial degree. And then there's a period of two years where you do your internship. So yeah, as a junior doctor and also a further year as a uh, first year, first year a resident medical officer in a hospital. So two years in a civilian hospital to get your full registration and also to get some some more rounded experience in hospital medicine before you go into, before you put a uniform on. So you, you end up doing that six-year period before you post to your first uh, army unit. Okay, so that's, uh, I know over here in the States, um, the process is kind of similar for uh, doctors and then uh, like EMTs, emer- uh, emergency medical technicians, um, or or even like soft medics, uh, particularly the um, Army Green Beret, 18 Deltas. Um, you know they have their, their their training, their time in their their medical training program, and then when they're finished, uh, they get sent somewhere in the country. And basically work like in emergency rooms and things like that and to, to help uh, get that experience of working with patients, uh, you know, like real world experience. And then from there, there's a process of, you know, going back to their units and, and then deploying, you know. Um, so so now you did your six years of your training and now you're you're, you're fully trained. And, and does that encompass more of the tactical medicine or, or do you do that after you've uh, been like fully into the, the uh, army type of medical training? Yeah. So the, the, that first six year period just gets you up to speed as a doctor. So basically there's no military component to that training. It's all civilian stuff like any other civilian doctor going through the process would do. And so once you've done that six year block and then you post to your first military unit, your first year uh, in uniform, so to speak, is is made up primarily of doing courses to bring you up to speed as a, to apply your medical skills in a military environment. So you go off and you do a condensed officer training component at our officer training school and you do courses such as your rotary wing medical evacuation course to learn to do aeromedical evacuation out of rotary wing platforms. You do... Uh, EMST, which is an early management of severe trauma, which I think is is known as ATLS in the States. So it's just a a few days there where you you learn to, as the name suggests, just do that first intervention for severe trauma to try and stabilise a patient uh, either in the pre-hospital environment or at the receiving destination medical facility where you're a bit resource limited. And there's a couple of other military-specific courses, uh, a logistic officers course and 
and uh, a couple other bits and pieces. And after you've done that suite of courses, which normally takes the best part of about a, a 12-month period by the time you uh, get on all your courses and 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 uh, do a bit of medical stuff at your unit in between, and at that point you become a deployable med- medical asset. So that gives you the basic uh, military, so nothing to do with uh, SF at that point, but it gives you the basic military skills to be able to use your civilian medical skills in a military context and then you become a deployable asset from there okay so now you've done your 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 full med six years and now you've done 12 months uh more tactical military medicine from this point did you already know that you were gonna go into the or you were gonna go to selection for the uh special air service regiment yeah, look, I, I had plans to do that from uh, way back in my uh, first year of medical school. I, uh, uh, I mentioned earlier my, my lifelong best mate had uh, gone through as an infantry soldier and then he ended up a, an officer uh, at the SAS regiment and has built a career there. And at the end of 2001, so just after the, the Twin Towers had fallen, uh, he was a junior officer with the SAS regiment and I'd gone over uh, to visit him before his first deployment. So Australia was gearing up to send its first push uh, over to Afghanistan in that initial uh, initial sort of period after the September 11. And so I'd gone over and basically had the opportunity to have a look around the the base there and meet some of the guys and see what the unit was all about. And so that was back in, in late 2001, early 2002, where I got a look at that world and decided that that, that was the direction I wanted to head in. So to, to put that in context, I was at the end of my first year of medical school uh, going into my second year the following year. So I still had all those years of, of university and then civilian doctors and then that first year of army training so it wasn't until 2008 that uh, I got the opportunity to go and do the selection course. Now the uh, the Australian uh, Special Air Service Regiment is modeled as a lot of uh, kind of tier one counterterrorism units are after the uh, British Special Air Service um, and the, the United States Army has their uh, tier one component which is modeled after the same unit um and then we have like a naval component as well um mm. you know with the seals um so the you know the the uh, obviously the australian sas uh has a very good reputation um as operators and and uh things like that now going through the selection process as a doctor is it is it like the same type of process or do you have any extra um, type of hoops that you have to jump through? No, the initial selection course as a three-week uh, initial selection was the same process no matter what background you came from in the military. So the the course splits at various points to do officer-specific modules, uh, which, which I was a part of because I was an officer, and then the, the – um, it's got the, the 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 soldiers peel off and and do their stuff while the officers do officers are doing theirs. Naturally, the when you look at a, a cohort of officers coming from all different branches of the military, uh, some of the military tactical stuff and the the military appreciation process, the planning uh, 
type stuff, it was taken into consideration that I came from a, a, a non-warfighting background when I was doing my assessments on those things. But it was it was still expected that that I was to put forward plans and, and work through our formal military appreciation process. So, but of course the the um, all the uh, DS on the course were well aware that I was I was from a non non arms background and I, I, that that would have been factored in when assessing me. But the the course itself was no different, uh, no matter what background you came from. Okay, cool. So so I know it, it would be something along the lines of um, you know like a physical part, and then I guess at least over in the states it's something similar along these lines of the physical part, like kind of stress, physical stressors and stuff. And then over in the States, you know, at least for the Army component, they have what is known as the Operator Training Course. And that's kind of where you learn the the, the, the uh, military skills, you know, gunfighting and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, as a doctor going through selection, do you go through that type of uh, training as well, like with uh, small arms and stuff like that? Yeah, so it's not it's not part of the actual selection course. Any of that training, there's no training, real training aspect to the selection course. It's more the like you say the the physical side of things, but more the psychological side. And I guess over that three week period, right. the it's, it's intensely physical with a goal of of wearing you down uh, with a, a combination of high physical intensity, a lot of. Uh, psychological uh, stress load over that period, the, a degree of sleep deprivation and, and food deprivation at, at, uh, in a very controlled fashion within certain components. And, and uh, what they're assessing for there is, is just looking how the individual can operate under stress in a sleep and food deprived uh, state. And I guess that's what you reach towards the very end of that course. And that's the, the crux of the course is the last five day period where they ratchet up the, the intensity and, and uh, you don't get a lot of sleep or food and, and basically just seeing how you function in your, in your kind of rawest form when you, when you're really quite physically and, uh, and emotionally depleted, I guess. But so the, that's the, the initial three week component. And then, Following that, assuming that you're selected for further training within the unit, you go into a, a, a period of the the training. And so that's when they, once they've decided that you show the aptitude to continue your training with the the, uh, the unit, that's when they'll start putting you through the various components of, of training, like you mentioned, with all the, the um, small arms and, and uh, whatever else to, to make you up to a, a fully deployable uh, SAS asset. And when it came to that, to come back to your question, as a doctor, I didn't complete that full suite of reinforcement courses. Uh, it just, it, in the end, it's, it wasn't applicable to my trade. So it was not, not going to be a good use of, of uh, time. And it just didn't, didn't work out that way because you end up contributing about another 18 months to that period. And I was needed in a, a medical role. Okay. Yeah, I know there's, so that, that that's interesting because, um, I know there's kind of similar processes over here in the states, and um, so now you make it into the the regiment, um, and so for like let's say you you know you you have some deployments, right? Where were your deployments to? The one at least what you can talk about. Yeah, so primarily uh, Afghanistan was was where I found myself mostly over the period of time that I was working with SOCOM. I did uh, four tours over there, and 
uh, spent a little bit of time in, in East Timor. I actually, uh, soon after selection, I went back to my regular army unit and deployed with them to East Timor uh, for a period. And, and then, but yeah, Afghanistan was where I spent most of my time deployed with SOCOM. Okay. And, um, you know, so obviously uh, Australian SF, highly regarded unit, uh, I would imagine taking on very dangerous tasks and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Now, as a doctor, you're you're overseeing the medical aspect, or or you're you're running the medical component during the deployment. Is that pretty much what it would kind of be like? Yes, the the role there was the the doctor was a, a task task force uh, asset. So it sort of I wasn't attached to any individual unit. Our contingent over there comprised of of elements from several different units, and so my day-to-day role was to run the the small medical centre that we had on base, which looked after the day-to-day medical care of the the um, deployed task group. On top of that, I had a role in the medical planning aspect of, of operations. So when the, the warfighters were were working up their ops to, to go and do some targeting, I'd be developing a, a medical plan to complement that uh, operation and so I had a function in that that planning and working in with the, the uh, warfighters to to put together a medical plan that was going to be appropriate for the job and and mitigate risk as best as we could uh, within reason and and still allowing for the the best chance of operational success and then on higher risk operations or operations where we were pushing uh, to the the limits of uh, uh, distances from surgical facilities or on operations where we were going out with a large force that justified it, I'd uh, then go out with the operational element and provide forward uh, medical coverage for, for point of injury, care of the wounded. All right, so now would you be uh, okay with maybe sharing a story for the audience like from a deployment? Um, you know, it could be a- any kind of story that you, you think would be interesting to share. Yeah, yeah, look, I'd, yeah, happy to, to sort of give a, the audience a bit of a picture of some of the situations that, uh, that we found ourselves in. I guess a... One that springs to mind and just highlights the complexities of the the role. We um, we'd been given the the role of going into southern Afghanistan to uh, basically try and try and uh, hit a target down there. It was a known enemy stronghold that the the element who owned the territory hadn't been able to to crack into, and so our task force got the job of doing that. So we we went in there with a, a significant force. The um, the the crew that was was uh, the ones who put their hand up to put us in was was uh, was some of your guys. The one sixtieth uh, took us in, and and we decided we'd we'd land right on target and basically just try and get into this village as quick as we could. We assessed that we were going to get engaged very very shortly after we hit the deck, and so. Um, We'd, night insertion, uh, sort of somewhere around midnight, I guess it was, and and the the forty uh, sevens hit the deck. We we ripped off the back and and basically ran towards this target village. We had our compounds of interest pre designated, and and within about thirty seconds of, of hitting the deck that night, we we got engaged uh, by machine gun fire, uh, 
And uh, fortunately, it, it, it was assessed that the enemy didn't have a lot of night fighting capability and they were just shooting at the sound of the helicopter. And by the time they got organised and and uh, lit us up with, with the guns, we were well away from the insertion point. <clears throat> so we moved on to target and set ourselves up in a, a designated compounds of interest, met with a, a moderate amount of resistance as we made our way into the into the, the target village, but fortunately didn't sustain any serious casualties. There was a couple of airburst RPGs and some minor uh, frag wounds, but nothing significant on the first night. And on that occasion, the, the, the situation as it evolved, we ended up staying on target for a little over 48 hours and it was uh, summer in Afghanistan. And, and in that period of time, it was, it was near constant combat. There was periods of lulls uh, where the, the enemy was regrouping and basically reinforcing as well using their underground tunnel systems. So the, the first day of fighting after we'd inserted in the early hours was, uh, was fairly intense, and, but basically we were, we were sort of assessing where the enemy was at. They were probing us and assessing where we were at, and there was some, some uh, not, not too much close-quarter stuff but more medium-range stuff, and, and uh, we, we ended up depleting our ammo stores and also our water. It was, it was up around... 50 degrees on on that day but um had a good day had a lot of air support uh had the the uavs in the air and uh, and apaches on station at all times and and overnight that night we we got a, a resupply dropped in and so we got resupplied our ammo and water and and then into the second day started uh, the enemy started probing a little bit harder and and our team started to move out a a little bit more and started with a bit more close quarter combat and mm. Sustained a, a few casualties in the morning of that day, so thankfully nothing too serious on that occasion. We we had a couple of guys that that uh, got some some superficial shrapnel wounds from a grenade. One one took a few through the chest that caught him around the plate, and the other guy took a few in the arm. And then had a, a another casualty about midday. Who um, he had a big chunk blown out of the front of his leg uh, by an RPG, and so wow. ended up. In in the early hours of that afternoon, uh, affecting an, an AME, and by that time, the enemy had had really reinforced well, and and uh, we were in a, a good old firefight. And the AME bird ended up uh, taking taking a fair bit of heat, and it had a couple of Apaches with it that were doing gun runs to try and suppress the enemy as best as possible. But the the bird was getting uh, a little shot up, and and to their credit, the uh, the, the dust-off crew just came in and grabbed our blokes and, and took them off target, and uh, which is a point that I can't stress enough. I can't think of a single time where dust-off didn't come and get our guys when we needed them, no matter how shot up they were getting. So I'd, I'd take my hat off to anyone in a dust-off crew. But um, into that afternoon, so we'd been fighting for near on a constant 36 hours at uh, that stage, and we had a, a small detachment moving forward to try and clear a couple of machine gun positions. And, and uh, sadly, uh, one of our guys initiated a, a, um, an IED, so a dismounted patrol, and he hit a big IED and, and uh, got fairly severely injured. The other elements of his patrol got, got quite badly uh, injured as well to varying degrees, some with shrapnel, others with uh, just pure injuries from the blast wave. So that was coming up late afternoon sort of approaching dark and and they were dislocated they were away from our element and uh naturally we we put together as quickly as we could a, a, a quick reaction force and 
have moved forward to to get to them and the, the guys on on scene despite having been hit by the either shrapnel or the blast wave from that huge uh, IED had had done a fantastic job recovering and doing the initial medical management of the the most severely injured casualty and so we we moved forward I, I joined up with a small QRF and and uh, we raced forward on foot as, as quick as we could to get to that dislocated enemy uh, sorry element and started medical management and and managed to stabilise three of the blokes. I uh, had another medic with me who did an exceptional job and and sadly worked on the on the the most injured bloke for for about twenty or thirty minutes, but weren't able to salvage uh, salvage him. Unfortunately, he was too badly injured. So uh, we 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 lost our mate there. And oh, wow. and in that setting, that was right on dark. We had the AME birds uh, in in a holding pattern basically going bingo on fuel because they'd been called forward to we knew we had casualties and so they were they were running out of fuel on us we had to get our other guys onto those birds and and uh so we we had to make the tough decision to to uh call it with with uh most injured casualty and and uh and basically pack up and try and extract out of there the enemy knew that we had a a, an element that, that had sustained significant casualties and was dislocated from the main force and they were probing our position. But um, thankfully we had some fantastic leadership on the ground who, who coordinated our extraction from that position back to the, the main force and we managed to get one of the AME birds in to take out the, the most uh, significantly injured of the, the remainder but we deemed it too dangerous for the second bird to come in and pick up the, the lesser injured guy and and uh, our, our KIA, and so we we um, ended up fighting into the night. And thankfully, a big a big dust storm blew up that evening, so we were due to extract off target about ten k's. And and uh, and the one sixtieth boys were going to come and pick us up from there. And and thankfully, a massive dust storm blew up, which covered our extraction, and we got out of there unscathed. But yeah, it was a, a pretty solid forty eight hour period uh, within which, unfortunately, we lost a. A, uh, a fantastic warrior. Yeah, I know that's um, that's never easy, man. And um, you know, I just want to thank you for sharing that uh, on the podcast. Um, so, you know, obviously, with certain wounds like that, you know, if you're stepping on an ID on a dismounted patrol, that's very hard to survive it. Especially, um, you know, I know Afghanistan. Is, I, if I'm not mistaken, is the uh, the most heavily mined country in, on the planet, and um, Part of part of the problem in Afghanistan isn't just that the, the Taliban and, and all these groups that are fighting now or are, are laying these mines is that the uh, the Russians had uh, laid a ton of mines when they left Afghanistan. So now you're dealing with the guys you're currently fighting plus the mines that were left, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Um, so, you know, obviously some wounds, you know, like you just talked about are are nearly impossible to to save guys who are wounded by you know given the severity of the wound but i think overall for uh this global war on terror error that we're in of uh you know uh in Iraq Afghanistan and elsewhere the the number of wounded soldiers coming surviving their wounds on the battlefield have increased uh dramatically uh compared to previous conflicts um now I know some of that is attributed to the uh really the the widespread use of the tourniquet and um you know bleeding control and things like that 
is that something that has been reflected in the Australian army as well or Australian military? Yeah, look, absolutely. And the, the it's, it's, uh, it was a fantastic time and a very privileged time, uh, for me to, to be in, uh, particularly special operations medical within the Australian army, because we were able to really leverage off all the advances that had been made by, uh, the the US. So basically, I mean, with the 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 inception of the tactical combat casualty care concept after uh, Mogadishu and and the the greats like uh, Frank Butler of tactical medicine that that really sat down. And I know he's not alone. I single him out because uh, he he was fundamental to it all, and had a good look at what was what was killing people on the battlefield, and then took it the next step and said. So what? What can we do about it? So I sat down and, and looked at all the the uh, brave men that lost their life in Mogadishu that night, and said, "Look, you know, this guy may not have been able to say be saved, but but this guy possibly could have if we had have had this device or this piece of equipment, or if we had have done this technique." And and that concept uh, of T Triple C that then evolved out of it, and the advances in things like arterial tourniquets and hemostatic dressings, things like the, the forward use of a drug called tranexamic acid, which is designed to slow down internal bleeding, non-compressible bleeds. And all these advances, uh, we were in a position to watch what the US was doing. And, and uh, I had the, the privilege of going over to the States a few times, spending some time up at Bragg uh, at the schoolhouse there, seeing what the, the crew were doing. Uh, spending some time with the, the NATO uh, soft community over in Belgium and training with these people, learning from these people. The, the, the U.S. special operations community were very, very generous with their, with their giving of knowledge and, and, and sharing of experiences, and we were able to leverage off that and use the lessons learned from the international community to better prepare our soldiers for, for combat. And, and over the years, we, we had some fantastic life-saving outcomes uh, because of the generosity of the U.S. soft community in, in uh, giving us that information so we could prepare properly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all interesting stuff. And, um, you know, and on one hand, obviously war is, is, is bad. Uh, you know, people people die, people get wounded, maimed, and, you know, it kind of destroys families. And, you know, a, a lot of things go wrong when, when war is happening, right? But at the same time... Um, advancements are made and i think one one good thing to come out of this global war on terror is the advancement of the medical care medical treatment and uh things like that so um you know we'll, we'll talk about a couple of things as, as that kind of relates to how it translates into the civilian sector or or back here in the states or or back over in australia but uh before we get there so this you know, there's tourniquets. Um, you said there's a bunch of different things that were kind of brought into use and um, have been effective at saving lives on the battlefield. One thing you said interested me was uh, a way to slow down internal bleeding. Um, can, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting concept, and they the the literature, the the uh, medical literature, goes back and forth on on how useful this drug is. But the, the name of the drug is tranexamic acid, or it's referred to as TXA. 
And it's, uh, it's not a new drug by any means, but it's only in the last decade or so that people have, have looked at it in a new light, and that is to potentially be able to slow down massive hemorrhage at the, at the point of injury. And so there's been a couple of large trials, uh, the first of which was a thing called the CRASH-2 study that looked at using TXA in trauma casualties, most of which were in third world countries. It's a very cheap drug. It's very accessible. It's very heat stable. So it makes it useful. Uh, it's not one of these super expensive drugs that's got to be kept uh, temperature controlled. I mean, this stuff can be kept on the shelf for a long period of time in austere environments and and it's uh, very cheap and accessible. So it's, it's good from that regard. But the fundamentally what, what TXA does, or just to, to back up one step from that, I mean, the biggest killer on the battlefield is uh, or cause of preventable death, which is important to differentiate. Unfortunately, some people are going to get injured and there's nothing you can do to save their lives. But the things that we needed to focus on in tactical medicine were the preventable deaths. So the ones that we could save who would die unless we did something. And the number one cause of that was was uh, people bleeding out from massive bleeds. And so hence the the use of arterial tourniquets. So for the the uh, the soldiers who who might have stepped on a, an IED and have got the, the horrendous bilateral uh, lower leg amputations, if you can put a tourniquet high up above that wound and cut off the blood flow to that leg, you can prevent that casualty from bleeding out and save their life. If it's a little bit higher up, maybe in the groin or the armpit, what we call junctional bleeds, it's too too high on a limb to, to tourniquet but you can still get to it. It's still accessible. And so that's where your quick clot and your hemostatic dressings come in. You can you can cram that into the wound and the chemicals in those dressings will speed up the clotting process and you can stem the bleeding. Once you start getting into bleeds that are called non-compressible, so the ones that are inside the body being the places like the chest, the abdomen, the pelvis, the areas where you can, you can drop huge amounts of blood, but you can't get any quick clot onto it and you can't get a tourniquet onto it, the, uh, they're very challenging bleeds to control, and the, they basically the the key there is to get that person to a surgical facility quickly to get a surgeon to open them up and and stop the bleeding uh, at the at the source. But this stuff, TXA or tranexamic acid, the 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 concept of it is when your body starts bleeding it'll start to the, the chemicals in your in your body will identify you've got a source of bleeding and it'll start to try and clot that bleeding so that's a natural process and it's an evolutionary thing to stop us from bleeding out it's why you form scabs uh, externally and it happens internally in your body as well as soon as your body starts forming clot anywhere in it it will then release chemicals that will break down that clot. And so whilst you want your body to clot off and stop stop bleeding from a uh, from an area, you don't want too much blood clot in your system because that can cause problems. If you get little bits of blood clot in the wrong places, like your lungs or in your brain, then that can, uh, that can be life-threatening in itself. So your body's got a way of a chemical system which will form clots, and then it's got one that breaks down clots, and the two try and balance each other out. Now, what tranexamic does, uh, tranexamic acid does, TXA, is it inhibits the system that breaks down clots. So when someone's taken a hit, they're bleeding internally and their body's trying to form a clot, what TXA does is it gets into the system and it stops the other chemical system that wants to try and break down that clot. So the theory behind it is 
your body can can clot off as best as it can internally without the other system trying to break that clot down. Ah, that's interesting. So it's kind of allowing the natural process of your body to kind of maximizing the effect of of what you would need to to slow down that bleed, basically. Yeah, that's exactly right. Without the so without the uh, yeah without what what's called the fibrinolytics, so the, the chemicals in the body that want to break down the clot, it, it deactivates them, so the clot becomes more stable. There's nothing acting to break that clot down in your system. Wow, that's very interesting stuff, and it, it's interesting because it's you know you said it's kind of it's simple in the way that the uh, the medicine itself th- doesn't need much to sustain itself, and then. Uh, you, you said it's been around for a while, but recently it's been looked at differently. So that's very interesting. Um, so I've had a, uh, I've had different soft medics on before, uh, mainly from the U.S. Um, and one guy I had on is a um, a Sark, a special amphibious reconnaissance corpsman, and those are the medics who work with Marsoc and uh, Force Recon Marines, and. Um, mm-hmm. And and we were talking about, uh, you know, he was saying like the, it only takes a little bit of pressure to to stop a a bleed if you know where if you can get to it, um, you know, like a finger or two would usually do the trick. Uh, and then we also talked a little bit about uh, junctional tourniquets and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. But but we didn't get too deep into like what you would do where you would kind of discuss just now about like getting into an armpit or. Uh, you know, a wound that's higher up on the leg, maybe, or, or like maybe somewhere in the hip. And, uh, mm. is that what you would do? You would, you would use this, uh, this medicine pretty much in, until you can get to a, like a facility that has surgeons and that kind of thing, or? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's very tough thing to deal with in the field, those non-compressible bleeds. And so, yeah, you, you spot on, I mean, you, you do what you, you can to, uh, apply pressure if at all possible, but if it's internal bleeds, so if people have taken rounds, through the chest or caught some shrapnel around their armour or in the abdomen, so things you just simply can't get at, then uh, you can use the TXA to try and stabilise any clots your body's forming as best you can. The the other thing you can do, we did always try and have uh, blood with us, so some units of blood, and uh, and the, the American surgical teams that we worked with were very... Uh, generous once again with giving us units of blood to take out on target and so that we could transfuse casualties at the point of injury to keep them going just uh, realizing that they are bleeding out but just topping them up it's like sort of pouring fuel into a leaking fuel tank you right. can keep that and en- can keep that engine running for a period of time until you can plug that hole uh, the the other thing that's that's an interesting concept that's fallen out of the advances in in medical management of casualties pre-hospital is a, a concept called permissive hypotension or hypotensive resuscitation. And basically, what that what that concept involves is just running the body at just enough blood pressure to keep it going without cramming so much fluids into the body that you bump the blood pressure up and worsen internal bleeding. Hmm. And so that, that was that was the goal that we'd have if we had internally injured uh, soldiers. We'd we'd get that TXA in. We'd uh, where we had it possible. We'd we'd get some blood up and start transfusing them, and then we'd accept uh, a very low blood pressure, but just enough. And and the radial pulse, the pulse in your wrist, is was a good thing to go by. If they had a radial pulse, then that told us that their blood pressure was high enough 
to be perfusing their vital organs, so so perfusing their brain, their lungs, their heart, and then all their liver, kidneys, and all the the, the crucial organs. As soon as the they lost their radial pulse, as soon as you couldn't feel the pulse in the wrist, that's when you'd consider giving a bolus of fluids just to the point where you got that pulse back, and then you'd back it off. What you didn't want to do is bump their blood pressure up too high with uh, fluids through the drip because all that did was made the internal bleeding worse. So more pressure, it'd bleed more and you'd lose blood into the abdomen or the chest, wherever it's bleeding, and you'd replace that with fluids. And uh, fluids is no good to you in terms of it. It can't carry oxygen. It doesn't have any of the red blood cells. So yeah, a combination of the tranexamic acid, the permissive hypotension, uh, and then forward transfusion of blood, and then just rapid evacuation to a surgical facility was the the mainstay of management of, of uh, internally bleeding casualties. No, um, I, I know probably most of the audience uh, is familiar with the movie Black Hawk Down. I'm sure you are as well. Um, <laughs> there was a point in the movie where, uh, so the, the task force, if anyone doesn't know, this was in uh, Mogadishu in Somalia in uh, 93. Uh, there was a U.S. task force there. They were going after uh, warlords and stuff. And uh, it was pretty routine for the most part. Um, you know, they were capturing people and stuff like that. And then there was, you know, one of their, what would, would have been a routine mission turned into a really bad day and helicopters were shot down and guys were, were killed and stuff. So um, the task force comprised of elements of the uh, 160th, uh, Night Stalkers, the uh, Special Ops uh, Helicopter Regiment, which works with United States Special Operations Units, as well as British, Australians, and uh, so forth. And then it was Army Rangers, uh, I believe from the 3rd Battalion, 3rd Ranger Battalion. And then there was a unit of uh, the Army Tiered 1 unit, uh, Delta Force, was there as well. And Delta Force which would be the American equivalent of the uh, Australian SAS is uh, typically like older guys, more experienced uh, operators. And there was a point in the movie where, so, you know, in the movie, like the Rangers kind of, they typically younger guys, um, you know, special operations, but younger. And they, I guess they kind of look up to these Delta operators um, as they have more experience a lot of the Delta operators come from the Ranger regiments uh, before they go to selection to make it into that unit. Um, so it's, it showed the, the Delta operators writing their blood type on a piece of tape and taping it to their boot. Now, my question to you is, when you're when you're carrying this extra blood, uh, you know, in case you have to uh, give blood to give fluids to some of these guys, uh, give blood to some of these guys who are wounded and have these specific wounds where that is needed. Does it have to match their blood type? And is, is that what they were doing when they were taping the, the, their blood type to their boots? Yeah, we, we'd certainly go through the same process in terms of uh, screening all our guys before deployment and knowing what their blood type was and then having that uh, on. Uh, we'd have patches uh, that, that specified whether we had any drug allergies and what our blood type was. With regards to transfusing in the pre-hospital environment, 
uh, as I made mention to before, so we'd, we'd carry units of blood. And, and also there was, there was other elements that were carrying blood. The PJs would have bloods on their bird, uh, blood on their birds. And towards the end of the, the, my involvement with the conflict in Afghanistan, the dust-off birds were all carrying blood as well. So there's, there's certain blood types that are, are um, what we call the universal donor. So the, the O blood type, particularly O negative, is a blood that you can put into anyone. Uh, o positive, you can put into anyone as well. It, it can potentially, the positive part of it, which refers to a thing called the rhesus status of the blood, has some implications down the track, more so for women if they want to become pregnant. But the uh, in the emergency setting, you can transfuse O uh, units of O uh, red blood cells into anyone. So that's the stuff that we'd carry with us. The blood type itself, that has implications for when they get back to the destination medical facility. And some of these casualties would need 20, 30 units of blood to keep them going over the period of their resuscitation, surgery and uh, stabilisation. And so O blood you want to keep for just that initial resuscitation until you can work out what exact blood type they are and then you swing across to, to match their blood type. But the, the potentially, I mean, and I know the, the American, um, some of the SMU medics have been very active in working out ways to get forward uh, tests of compatibility of blood in case of the prolonged field care scenario where you are stuck in the field for some time and then potentially you can draw blood off one team member and put it into another, that's when you'd have to really start to drill down into the exact blood type and making sure that you're getting it perfectly correct because the wrong blood into the wrong person can uh, can do more harm than good and you can kill people with transfusion reactions. But, yeah, so certainly it's worth knowing the blood type it's uh, more applicable to the prolonged field care environment or the destination medical facility. And the initial stuff that you can put into anyone is the O blood types. All right, so you mentioned prolonged field care, and uh, it's kind of interesting. So for, you know, the, I, I would say, I guess the majority of the, uh, anytime a medevac was needed, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, there's something known as the golden hour where you want to get the patient to the hospital uh, within that hour and that increases their survivability. Um, now, I know there's like a uh, for for soft medics or I guess any medics in infantry or anything like that. You know, there's a you you try and keep a balance of having the right equipment, uh, but not having too much stuff on you so you can, you know, maneuver and stuff like that. Now, uh, there's a publication, I'm not, I'm not sure you probably are familiar with it. I, I believe it's called the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Yep. Uh, so they had an article, maybe it was a month ago, a little over a month. And basically it was talking about how the um, elements of the United States military are going to start focusing more on prolonged field care. Um, so I guess what, what would kind of be the opposite of prolonged field care, would that be what what most um, combat medicine is kind of working around in 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 these conflict zones uh, now versus uh, yeah. maybe a different type of conflict? Yeah, look, it's it's uh, it's very interesting. I saw that JSOM article, and and certainly the Australian militaries, uh, particularly SOCOM, is starting to posture towards, and it's it's basically trying not to get caught in that. 
fighting the fighting the last war type thing or training right. for the last looking towards what's what's next and what's the possibility and and we became very uh, used to in uh, Iraq Afghanistan to having access rapid access to AME birds we had air superiority you had bases nearby you'd plan your mission around exactly as you said the golden hour so that barring anything unforeseen a, a, like an unstable tactical environment on the ground or what have you where you just can't get a guy out you could almost guarantee to have your severely wounded bloke into a surgical facility with a top-end surgeon within an hour and as you say the, the statistics suggest that that one hour period really enhance, uh, enhances uh, chance of survivability after a, a severe trauma the so we and this was where TCCC kind of came to the, the forefront where you, you had all your guys trained in tourniquet application. So ideally, yeah, your bloke got hit. Everyone had a tourniquet, knew how to use it. So within seconds, they could have that massive hemorrhage controlled. You'd control the tactical environment. You'd call your AME bird in, bird would come in, grab your bloke, and they'd be at a surgeon within, uh, you know, sometimes 20, 30 minutes. And so it was, it worked really well in those environments the, and that's how everything starts. Every every uh, casualty management still starts with TCCC. The quicker you can get onto that and every last drop of blood you can keep into that casualty, the better chance of survival they have and, and it, it prolongs their time to death if they are going to die from, from uh, complications of blood loss. But the, the posture that most uh, militaries, particularly the special forces elements, are looking at now is one in which you don't have that AME bird directly overhead. So looking at, at more regional conflict zones, environments where you do your TCCC, but then you're stuck with that casualty uh, for 48, 72 hours. And so you need to, to go into the next phase of management, which was something that we rarely, if ever, had to do in Iraq or Afghanistan because we had such uh, excellent AME coverage and surgical facilities. But prolonged field care is looking at what's next. So we've done the initial stuff. We've got the tourniquet on. Well, that's great. It stopped the bleeding, but I can't leave that thing on for more than four hours. Uh, otherwise, I'm running the risk of, of killing off the leg, basically. So I'm stuck with this casualty for 48 hours. What do I do now? You start to think about things like antibiotics, like pain management, all these sort of things, uh, managing those, those casualties in that environment, fine-tuning their um, fluid balance with, with IV fluids, those kind of things moving into a, a longer period of time in the field. So, you know, prolonged field care is interesting. Um, you know, I think if anyone pays enough attention to, uh, you know, articles that's online, um, you know, podcast, uh, that sort of thing, you, you can kind of, you know, shows, documentaries, you can, you can get like kind of a basic understanding of, you know, like what, what I talked about a second ago, you know, the, the golden hour and, and what you were just discussing, how you had such quick access to these medevacs and things like that. Um, so now prolonged field care, you know, obviously you, you just stated you guys really had to deal with those type of situations in Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, now, I would imagine that these type of this type of training would be more geared to fighting a more conventional uh, foe, like, like an, another uh, country which also has, uh, you know, air assets and it wouldn't be so easy to just send a helicopter into any, you know, right into the heart of the enemy's territory and, and pick guys up, that kind of thing. Now, 
for the medics on the ground would prolong I would imagine that prolonged field care would would mean that they would at a minimum have to carry more equipment as well. Yeah, look, you're exactly right. I mean, if you want to sustain a, a casualty in the field for any period of time and and you, you only have to look around the room after a, a decent resuscitation and stabilisation in a civilian emergency department, the, the, the place is trashed. You've pretty much opened every device in your room. And uh, the But, yeah, if you want to be doing that in the field uh, austere environment and and dragging it out to longer periods of time, then, yeah, you're, you're spot on. You need more kit. There's no two ways about it. And things that spring to mind, if you want to sustain someone uh, for instance, just simply with intravenous fluids, then a litre of that stuff's going to go through, depending on how quickly you're running it, but over a matter of hours. And so every litre of fluid is a kilo. And so for every casualty that you want to sustain for, for say, a 24-hour period, it's three, four, five kilos of fluids alone to uh, sustain that one casualty. And then you've got all the other kit that goes with it. If you're lugging oxygen into the field, which is... Um, which is a fairly critical thing to give to trauma casualties and, and you give it to every trauma casualty if you've got it. But once again, oxygen cylinders, uh, they, they aren't light and they run out pretty quickly if you're using it high flow for a trauma casualty. So these are all the sorts of things that start to, to stack up in your pack on top of your, your already relatively heavy combat load with all your frontline uh, weapons ammunition. Uh, so, you know, I, I would imagine like, you know, you have to, uh, you have to, you know, for the at least for the prolonged field care aspect, you have to have more equipment. Obviously, that means you're going to be carrying a heavier load. Um, you know, I would imagine perhaps that would mean maybe there would be another medic or another guy who's going to share some of that burden uh, to carry some of these uh, heavier packs. Um, but one thing that's interesting, and I don't know if, what, what the Australian military is doing uh, as far as this goes, but I know it's being developed over here in the States, uh, what's called uh, TALOS, and that's the uh, Tactical Assault Light Operator Suit. And it's uh, basically a, a robotic exoskeleton. And, yep. um you know, it, it it has like a bunch of different functions, but w one of the uh, one of the things that stands out about it is uh, it's supposed to enable the operator to carry heavier loads. Now, I, I would imagine, you know, going forward, as um, United States and the Allied nations are making advancements in um, things like medicine, uh, you know, warfighting capabilities, and you know, with, with the potential of having a conflict with a, a larger nation, uh, not so much these smaller uh, kind of splintered uh, terrorist groups, um, you know, this is something that would, would make more sense for the, uh, you know, for the prolonged field care. Uh, is, the, is the TALOS program something that's being worked on in, in Australia as well? Mate, to be honest, I, I've been tracking the progress of it just in open source media. I, I don't right, know anything right. about yeah, whether or not our military is is looking at that. I mean, they will be watching it from a distance. Whether or not it's something that Australia is going to take on board, I've I've got no uh, no no way of knowing. But certainly, it's very it's a very interesting concept. And you know, medical is just one element of of uh, the military that's got to carry a bunch of kit. You look at all your other 
supporting elements that make up a, a, a special operations uh, task group. You look at your communicators uh, and your electronic warfare crew that are carrying these horrendous amounts of kit. And, and so definitely any of those, uh, that, that, that's a very interesting concept, that Talos, that, uh, that, that you could sort of strap that thing on and, and lighten your load somewhat. And I guess the, the other thing that interested me about that was one of the big uh, focuses towards the, the end of my special operations career was on preserving the longevity of, of the operator and uh, I had the privilege of getting over to Bragg a couple of times and and looking at the programs of all the, the high performance initiatives and what have you that uh, that some of the units up there were running and and we adopted that in Australia as well but basically physically trying to look after your, your guy you've, you've spent a lot of time and money developing this asset and you, you want to try and keep them physically in good a shape as you can so it's it's certainly got applications for not only carrying more kit on target, but also getting more longevity out of your operator, which uh, at the end of the day is a, is a huge uh, financial investment and you've got a, a real asset that if they blow out a knee, they're, uh, they're no good to you operationally. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, I, I've had on the podcast uh, a couple of times, I've had a, a guy by the name of Chuck Ritter on and Chuck is a... Um, a senior uh, sergeant at the special senior special forces leadership course. He's a Green Beret, and mm. um, you know Chuck. Chuck, uh, there's a video where Chuck was uh, in Afghanistan, and he was shot uh, in his back, I believe. And the uh, the 18 Delta was working on him, and this is on the video. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with North American Rescue as well. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah, so North American Rescue they shared the video. You know, I reposted it from them, and. Um, it's kind of interesting stuff, and uh, Chuck is like really big into fitness, and you know what you just said. We talked about uh, at length, and basically like training smarter and and uh, up upgrading the uh, the training methods and and certain things to uh, increase the longevity of guys who are going to stay in for ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, um, mm. and what they're doing now and, and this is what we talked about the last time he was on is they were getting um basically the like guys who are experts in the latest in um you know sports medicine uh strength and performance training that kind of thing and and integrating that into the army special forces physical training aspects and and trying to um you know like i said increase the longevity of of the operators yeah yep yep yeah, it's a it's a, fa- a fantastic initiative, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head. The training smarter as opposed to harder. I mean, the the traditional kind of uh, workouts that I guess the the guys were doing may not have been the best thing for them. And and um, I I think it was two thousand and nine. I uh, went over to Bragg and spent some time there. And at that stage, they'd rolled in a it was a, a NHL uh, strength and conditioning coach that they'd rolled in to start running this training for, for one of the units over there. And it was a, just a fascinating period of time to watch that transition from the old sort of beach muscle type gym workouts to the real functional strength and yeah. the stuff that was the core stuff that was going to preserve these guys without chewing them out and without demolishing backs and knees. And it was a real revolution. And, and once again, like with the medical advancements that we managed to uh, leverage off the, 
it was the same with that high performance initiative. We were able to have a good look at, at the success that, that the US uh, units were having and also the British units and, and bring that to Australia and, and roll it out. So it's uh, it's uh, it's yeah it's exciting to and and it's it's pleasing to see that that we're not just sort of in that same cycle of just smashing these operators and throwing them away when they're broken and getting a new one that we're we're starting to think a bit smarter about it and, and preserving these people not only for their longevity as an operator but for their life post military uh, so that they can still be well functional. Right. So so Dan, so you uh, you were you know in the uh Special Air Service Regiment, uh, at, and now the uh, the Special Air Service Regiment was around for a while um, in the Australian military. I believe it was during the Global War on Terror that the, the Second Commando Regiment was uh, born, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, two, two commandos. So I was actually, I spent some time with the Second Commando Regiment as well, and it, uh, it became the Second Commando Regiment. So it was a... a uh, one of our infantry battalions with a commando mandate for a while. It was known as the the fourth uh, regiment, so four RAR commando, and it it became it was renamed uh, second commando regiment in two thousand and nine, so mid two thousand and nine, and certainly that unit really defined itself and proved its capability uh, during the the Afghan conflict. The the as a offensive fighting force and and the 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 guys from two commando did a fantastic job were involved in some some uh fairly significant events from an australian perspective over there and and did a lot of heavy lifting so yeah you're quite right they they were born during the um the the afghan conflict but they not so much born they evolved from from the four rar into their current commando role Okay, so now um, you you know you went in, did your full medical workup training o- over a number of years. You had some deployments. You worked with the uh, two commando regiment as well. Now um, you are part of a company called uh, Tac Med Australia. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so so Tac Med uh, Australia was founded by a. Uh, Army Australian uh, Australian Army Special Forces medic by the name of Jeremy Holder, and so he founded TACMED about five years ago, and um, and basically as a, a tactical uh, medical equipment company initially aimed at at pre-hospital providers uh, with a with an emphasis on on tactical elements such as the military police tactical groups, but also on ambulance officers and what have you. And he, he built a very successful equipment company out of that. And then when when I discharged from the full-time army, uh, there was a couple of, of elements, uh, some, some police tactical elements and, and uh, government organisations that I'd been involved with training that were, were interested in having a, a civilian organisation provide their tactical medical training. And so I'd, I'd started a small company just to to run the training for those organisations, and at around the same time, uh, Jeremy with TACMED was starting to to run more and more training himself. And so I'd, I'd known Jez for for some time, and we started to realise that we were targeting the same customers. So we'd I'd, you know be talking to people, and they'd be saying, "Hey, Jez is running the same stuff. Are you aware of that?" And anyway, so long story short, 
uh, I bought into TACMED Australia, as did another uh, Australian Special Forces medic by the name of Adam Cantrick. And so the three of us co-own TACMED Australia. And we've uh, evolved that company from a, a, a medical training equipment company, which it still is, uh, to more and more emphasis on on the training courses and we've recently had our uh, RTO, so registered training organisation status confirmed so we can run accredited RTO-based courses as well. So that's an exciting space to be a part of and it's a great way to stay engaged in the tactical medical space uh, since I've left the the military full-time. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, You know, having it to where it can be accredited is is very interesting and, you know, that's where people – you know, like like for, for really for any kind of training, physical training. You know, if if uh, if someone's going to get a personal fitness trainer, you you want to train with someone who has a certificate from an accredited organization, um, and 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 that would go with with anything, any kind of physical training or medical training, that kind of thing. So, uh, so do you guys also work in the realm of training civilians as well, or is that just for law enforcement and, and military? No, we, we train civilians as well. So we we run training for some some mine site emergency service officers so that uh, provide the, the medical coverage to a, a large mine site in Australia. We do a, a lot of stuff with, with civilian uh, government organisations as well as the, the police groups and, and also with sporting recreational shooters and hunters we run courses for for those groups and so yeah we um we certainly don't we initially had focused on the tactical side of things but we've branched out more so than that and and realized that a lot of these skills are are applicable to other groups and and even as as far out as uh recreational four-wheel drivers for in for instance that that remote area first aid and and all that first response no matter whether it, the injury or the trauma is sustained from a, a blast gunshot wound or from a car crash, it's all similar principles. So, yeah, TACMED uh, runs courses for, for civilian organisations and, and and individuals as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because now that, you know, um, uh, you know, now that after all these years of fighting and the, the global war on terror and the advances made by our, our military medics, Australian military medics, Americans, British, Canadians, um, you know, a lot of guys are coming out and bringing their skill sets to the civilian sector, just like you guys are. And, and that's really increasing the level of awareness and skills for the civilian population, uh, as well as the em- emergency medical technicians, um, EMTs, uh, that's what we call them over here in the States, uh, yep, yep. you know, first responders, that kind of thing. And now I believe that the EMTs over here are now using tourniquets and uh, stuff like that. And I believe they weren't really, uh, they didn't really believe in in that as much, uh, you know, prior to the global war on terror. So uh, one thing that uh, is interesting, you know, like I said, guys are coming home and and kind of increasing the overall medical knowledge that the, the countries are having, civilians. Um, yeah. is that something that's happening in Australia as well? And, and, and another thing I wanted to ask to kind of tie into that is Australia has a very vast, uh, kind of like wildlife, um, you know, kind of extreme conditions, very hot. And, um, 
I guess it could be dangerous in some parts, uh, kind of like remote areas, kind of austere environments, which is probably good for like military training. But, um, you know, like you said, even for people who are hunters or, uh, mm. you know, guys who are doing kind of like extreme um, adventure type stuff, you know, four wheeling, you know, long hikes and, and that kind of thing. Is that something that now the, the level is being increased because of the experiences from the wars or is did Australia kind of have a because of the uh, the wildlife and you know the great outback is that something that civilians kind of put emphasis on anyway or yeah there's a, some some interesting uh, points that you bring up there and the 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 first one that it, it, it was fascinating to watch the in the fallout of the the Boston Marathon uh, attack and and looking at the medical literature that came out after that and the response to that, which was outstanding, of course, and the, the civilian organisations did a brilliant job of, of um, saving lots of lives and as did the first responders straight on, on onto it there, a lot of which had military experience, knew to apply tourniquets, but there was no... Uh, commercially available tourniquets for them to use are all improvised but the and in the just on reflection of that in the medical literature they looked at that and said hey look we we knew that tourniquets worked we've got decades of military experience dealing with traumatic amputations of which they saw uh, I think it was 15 or 16 uh, in the in that Boston series of explosions and and yet they didn't have the the first responders didn't have the commercially available tourniquets and so and since then has evolved all the uh, what was known as the Hartford Consensus which was a meeting of a, a huge body of, of uh, leaders in various industries the police the military the the uh, hospitals the EMTs looking at how they can basically intervene in the immediate aftermath of a, of a terrorist mass casualty event or an active shooter type scenario where there's casualties on target but you can't necessarily get them out and and then rolled out the bystander stop the bleed campaign so it's it's been fascinating from Australian uh, perspective to watch that unfold in the states and and to be empowering hemorrhage control right down to the civilian individual level and back home in Australia we we are very uh, fortunately to date have been largely insulated from terrorist mass casualty events and so uh, whilst the, all the intelligence organizations in the open source media suggest that it's it's likely that we'll we'll have an attack here the the sort of uh, sentiment in Australia is that that uh, we're, we're fairly protected from that. And so because we haven't had an event like that, we haven't had the opportunity to learn ourselves what works and what doesn't work. And the, the more forward-leaning organisations are looking at international events and realising that this is something that we need to be prepared for. But um, still, with regards to, say, use of arterial tourniquets, our ambulance officers have still only got them on their protocols as last resort when all other measures have failed. And so they, they need to go through their full suite of hemorrhage control techniques before they can put a tourniquet on. And anyone who's served in the military knows that that's pointless. You need to get that thing on straight away because by the time everything else has failed, they've bled out another few units of blood. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, the, the certainly the, there's a lot of uh, ex-military people, TACMED are, are, are certainly right up there amongst them that are, are trying to, raise awareness and and we um on our website at uh, which is at, at tacmedaustralia.com.au we've got a blog site there where we write 
case studies of of gunshot wound injuries or blast injuries from overseas to to the target audience is the police law enforcement, the EMTs, the AMBOs, the mine site medical uh, assets to try and step them through what happened in those tactical scenarios and how that might apply to them. And and so we're, we're pushing to try and raise awareness. We've, we've recently put out a, an e-book uh, called Arterial Tourniquets for Police Law Enforcement and other first responders, once again, just looking at the arterial tourniquet, looking at how it was applied in the, the uh, wartime environment and then looking at how that translates to today's civilian environment for first responders. But, um, yeah, so there's, we're certainly trying to push for that uh, education and that translation of military lessons learned into the civilian assets. But um, as I said also, we've, we've been very lucky in Australia not to have one of these events to date to really push it into the, the forefront of people's minds and, uh, and I fear that, that people will become more interested in this after the event, uh, heaven forbid. Right, and, and that's kind of unfortunate in, in, in that regard, um, you know, that people kind of don't think about it or, or people don't think it's possible until it happens to you kind of thing, you know? And, um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, like you said, we had the, the Boston bombing over here. Um, mm. More recently, we had the... Uh, the shooting in Orlando, yeah, a bunch of people were killed, and, and what's kind of interesting about that is um, each uh, each municipality over here, uh, in regards to the police departments, um, they have different budgets and and different requirements. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's like a kind of general standards that uh, are required for law enforcement first responders, but they are slightly different in different uh, areas. So. Um, mm. You know, I know that the, like, for example, the NYPD here in New York, you know, they, they have very advanced training and a, and a humongous budget to where, yes. you know, they can bring in ex-special ops medics and, and, and they have, you know, ex-special ops medics who are, are officers now with, with the department and, and they have all this advanced training. Now, if you go to a place like, you know, a much smaller area, perhaps they don't have the same budget, perhaps they don't have the same... Uh, guys coming in and running these courses, right? So um, part of the issue with the, the Orlando shooting was people were getting shot inside, right? And then they were coming out. And uh, I guess, I'm not sure the exact details, but I, I think part of their protocol, at least in, in that specific area, was that if there's an area that's deemed like a hot zone, like where there's an active shooter situation going on, like there, like there was there, the medics, the, the emergency medical technicians can't go into that area until it's secured. So yep. people were getting shot in the club. They made it out. And because of these rules, they couldn't get to the EMTs. So people were yes. bleeding out and dying on the street because of these protocols. And the, the officers, if I'm not mistaken, didn't have the, the uh, like this TCCC training or this bleeding control training to where they could have just thrown a tourniquet on these individuals or, yeah. or, or done some basic uh, bleeding control uh, techniques to, to stabilize these people. So, you know, after that, mm -hmm. there was some debate about maybe we should nationalize the, the EMT training or, uh, you know, nationalize training for police officers as well, like to carry tourniquets and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but, but what sucks again about it is that it takes for something like that, for that discussion to come up. And, um, 
And so uh, another thing, so I, I kind of want to ask you, and, and I, this is kind of for my own uh, information, and I guess anyone of the audience who's listening and who mm. who travels and, and is kind of interested in kind of adventure type stuff, you know, hiking and maybe remote environments or, you know, scuba diving, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what, you know, what, what type of, you know, kind of a small kit you know, is recommended like for like, like, let's say I was going to go hiking in a, a Caribbean country. Um, would you recommend I had a tourniquet on me? Um, or, or do you guys have kits on your website that kind of covers these type of things or? Yeah, look, we do. We've, we've got that very kit that you're talking of. I mean, you can, you can always, uh, paint a hypothetical picture that's going to, uh, sort of snooker you and and this is where you start building these massive kits that are ridiculous with stuff you'll never need but but certainly the um uh, you know i try and focus on things that are going to make an immediate difference and uh, be potentially life-saving and and certainly an arterial tourniquet is a a small cheap easy to use device if you've uh, taken the time to learn about it and learn how to apply one properly and uh, as i mentioned before that's the that's the the goal of that ebook is just to break down the the um the what it's all about how to use it why we use it what it does and just simplify it and demystify it but definitely an arterial tourniquet that's something that's going to save a life you need to think about things like snake bites and make sure that you've got the appropriate bandages to be able to apply what we call a pressure immobilization bandage just to try and slow the flow of that uh, venom into the system and, and delay the effects of the snake bite until you can evacuate a, a casualty. Some basic antiseptics and dressings so that you can clean a scratch and a wound and to prevent it from becoming infected. The other things that, that I think are quite useful if you're traveling to countries where it might be more uh, more third world type environment where you're worried about the sterility of equipment is to, to carry a supply of your own needles and, and sutures so that if you do need to get stitches, uh, you can still go into their medical facility, but you can say, hey, here, use my sharps so that anything they might be injecting into you is at least through what you know as a is a clean uh, syringe. Uh, it's clean needle, I should say, or clean sutures to to suture up a wound. But yeah, certainly on the on the TACMED website, I mean, we've got uh, we've got and on the TACMED blog, which you can get to uh, through the TACMED website, uh, Jeremy's done up a, a small kit for for a car is uh, his example. But all those ideas are there for if if anyone wants to have a look at that and then see. I mean. Uh, and then then build your own kit but yeah look you you mentioned it and you will have picked up i'm a massive advocate of the arterial tourniquet because it's not something that you'd need often but it's the one thing that's going to save a life that that otherwise someone would bleed out and die in the in the unfortunate event that you're involved in a say a car crash or a motorbike accident and no one's coming in a hurry right so yeah like i i, I plan to travel to a uh you know, a country that's not so advanced in terms of the, the medical and infrastructure and, and do some hiking and maybe perhaps scuba diving and stuff like that. So, you know, for anyone out there who is into that kind of stuff, um, you know, I would suggest go to their website, check out their ebook and check out their blog and, and you can kind of educate yourself uh, about some of these things. And then if you want to take it a step further, you can order some of their, their kits and gear and, uh, you know, really square yourself away. So, this ebook is it available on your website? 
Yeah, it's available on Amazon. So you can you can hop onto Amazon and and uh, look up uh, arterial tourniquet, uh, tourniquets for police officers, law enforcement, and other first responders. So it's currently sitting there. It's under the emergency medicine uh, category, and it's uh, it's it's actually doing quite well. I think last last I checked, it was sitting at the fifteenth uh, ranked in that category in the world. So nice. people are embracing it, which is which is great to see, and I'm, we're getting some good feedback from it. But yeah, for anyone who might have cause to use an arterial tourniquet, and it's as the title suggests, it's geared towards police and law enforcement who we're hoping, TACMED's hoping that in the future we'll really start to embrace this. And, and exactly as you said before, that scenario where there's a cordon, there's an active shooter, there's an unknown bomb threat, what have you, civilian EMTs are not coming in there. And so this, this attitude that we unfortunately have had from police elements in the past that, well, we don't need this because the ambulance is going to be right outside what they're failing to, to recognise, and you illustrated it perfectly, unfortunately, in that Orlando scenario, is those EMTs, they're not trained and they're not paid enough to come into the hot zone. Uh, and not only that, they don't have the mandate. I'm sure the majority of them would quite happily put their own welfare at risk to, right. to help a person. They, they simply cannot come in. And so it is, it is up to the, the forward elements, the police, the law enforcement, those first responders, to be doing that life-saving intervention put the tourniquet on, stop the bleed, and then when the zone is clear and, and the EMTs can move forward or you get a uh, control of the tactical situation, you can extract your casualty, then the EMTs can do their thing. But without that initial management, it's all for nothing because they will bleed out uh, whilst you watch them from a distance. And, and uh, sadly, it sounds like, uh, from what you're saying, that, that may have been what happened, which is a, a devastating outcome in this day and age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Major, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I appreciate you having this conversation. I know the uh, audience is going to appreciate it. Uh, lots of good information. Um, for anyone who wants to keep up with you and, and your company, they can go to uh, au. And what about social media or, or any other place? Yeah, so, so uh, certainly I've got a, a LinkedIn page under my own name and uh, – and there's a, a Instagram uh, page both under Dan Pronk and also under TACMED Australia. Facebook, uh, TACMED Australia is very active on Facebook. We're, we're posting all the time. So, yeah, we'd love to engage with your audience uh, over those mediums. And, and yeah, just want to say, hey, thanks for having me. This is a great privilege. I, I look at some of the other people you've interviewed and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's humbling to think that uh, you considered me amongst them. So thanks very much uh, to uh, you guys. Uh, cool, no problem, man. And uh, you know, I'd I'd have you on at any point. So if you guys wanted to come back on and you know discuss anything more specific or just kind of have a general conversation again, you know, just let me know. Hey, that sounds fantastic. Really appreciate it. And I'll have to grab your uh, your postal details, and we'll put that med kit together for you and send it over. Oh, I, I definitely appreciate that, man. Um, you know, I, I'll be heading out uh, soon, so I uh, definitely oh, appreciate it. Right. Might not have time for this one, but we'll catch you for the next. <laughs> Um, all right, cool, man. So, you know, once again, thank you for, for coming on and, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for your service. Yeah, no, thank you, John. And I appreciate what you guys are doing over there at Global Recon. It's uh, it's awesome, man. Keep it up. I enjoyed the conversation that I had with the major, um, good bits of information in there. And I think a lot of the sort of basic life-saving, um, you know, bleed control stuff is, 
you know, very important because it's something that it's it's simple, but it's effective, and it's something that people should be familiar with. And you know, there's a lot of data and statistics to back up the fact that a lot of injuries that happen, you know, in the states or you know anywhere really in, in the world, uh, could have higher rates of people surviving these incidents if only the people on the scene had some basic training and in, in some of these techniques and uh the guys over at TACMED Australia they really do good work and uh with their courses they have an ebook which is very good uh, you should check it out and um you know th- there's a potential that we may have some further collaborations down the line with TACMED Australia through articles and blog posts and and things like that all in the realm of uh TAC medicine and you know, all that good stuff. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed, you know, recording with the major. Um, you know, with that, I'll close it out. My website is globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. On Twitter at IG Recon. On LinkedIn, search Global Recon. As always, I would encourage you guys to Subscribe, download, share the episodes with your family. Leave us a rating on iTunes. And that way, it'll be easier for us to continue to provide you with high-quality content as we remain in the top of the charts at the government and national categories on iTunes. All right. And with that being said, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace. Peace.